Well, good morning, everyone. We are coming to you from the festival site here in Wadebridge, um, Cornwall, in England. And it's, it's just a, a blessing to be able to be here, but yet to, to be there with you this morning. And uh, thank everyone for your prayers. We've had a tremendous week. And um, what, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to show you uh, the video from our Sunday morning service here at Creation Fest and trust that you guys are going to be blessed. And uh, we miss you. We love you. We thank you so much for uh, your prayers and support. And keep us in prayer as things are still going on. We've got a lot of ministry still ahead of us, and we look forward to being home soon. So everybody, enjoy. God bless. And thanks again. I wanted to kick things off this morning by just, in a sense, sort of giving a, a bigger picture overview of what, of what we see in the Gospel of John and specifically regarding the, the whole issue of who Christ is and uh, his divinity. So I wanted to read to you this morning from the eighth chapter of John's Gospel, verses 56 through 58, and that will be the, the text that we'll use today. So John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, Jesus here in the context, he's having, um, really he's having a dispute with the religious leaders of his time who were resisting him, they were opposing his message, but even as they resisted him, his, his love and compassion came through as he was patient with them and he sought to persuade them to put aside their bias and to really consider his claims. And so here in verse 56 of chapter eight, speaking to them, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, the Jewish leaders, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Pray with me. Lord, we pray now this morning for our time in your word and for this amazing declaration as we consider it, Jesus, that you right here, that you claimed deity to yourself. And Lord, all of the implications of that, what that means for the world, what that means for the church, what that means for, for each of us that have gathered here today, we pray that you would make known to us in a greater way the implications of this claim for each one of us. Lord, we're asking you to do that today. Amen. So here in verse 58... In particular, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, in the clearest terms possible, Jesus claims to be God. Now, th this is exactly what these men understood him to be saying, because as we read on through the rest of the chapter, it says, and at this saying, they took up stones to stone him. They took up stones to stone him because they considered what Jesus was saying to be blasphemy. How could this man be, be claiming to be God? You see, when Jesus took to himself this, this title, I am, this is the very uh, title by which God made himself known to Moses. If you go back into the Old Testament, into Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14, maybe you remember the account there. Moses encounters the Lord in the burning bush and there God commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh and to command Pharaoh to release the children of Israel. And Moses, he, he asked this question. He said, okay, so when I go and I tell Pharaoh this and when I go to your people and I tell them that I've, I've come to deliver them, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And the Lord said to him, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. So when Jesus said to the Pharisees, 
Uh, Before Abraham was, I am, he was taking the name of God to himself. Now, it's interesting when you go back and you, you look at the passage there in Exodus, and as the Lord speaks to Moses, you know, who, who, who should I say sent me? God says, uh, I am who I am. You know, in some ways, when you first read that, it doesn't even really sound like an answer, does it? It almost sounds like, none of your business, Moses, I am who I am, don't worry about it, just go do what I told you to do. Uh, but that's not what's happening. This is actually uh, the name by which God is making himself known. And the meaning of this name is this. It means the self-existent, self-sufficient, entirely independent of all things, the uncreated or eternal uh, creator of everything. That's what the name implies. I am that I am. The self-existent one. The one who in himself, everything is derived from him, every, every being derives its being from him, and only God has the power of being within himself. He is who he is, he alone is the source of all being. So he's, he's claiming to be the, uh, the, the self-existent one. Now, we all exist, of course, we all have being, but we don't have being in and of ourselves, do we? I had no control over my arrival here on earth, and I really don't have any control over my departure. I came to be, and there will be a point where I will no longer be, and I can't do anything about that. But you see, God in him is being, and he is the eternal being. He always has been. And so when when God said to Moses, I am who I am, that's what he was talking about. When Jesus said that to the Pharisees, that's what he was saying about himself. Now, this, if we get a hold of this, which I I hope we will do this week and even this morning, if we get a hold of just exactly who Jesus is, then it clears up all kinds of things because, uh, of course, there are a variety of religions out there and all of the religions claim to be authoritative. They claim to be uh, from God. Well, how do we know which religion is right or true? Well, only one of those religions did the founder claim to be God. And that, of course, is the Christian faith. Jesus claimed to be God. We also would then have to conclude, if Jesus is indeed God, the only God, the true God, then everything that he said is of vital importance. What he told us about life is important. It's vitally important. What he told us about how we are to live is vitally important. And when we understand Jesus being God, then again, it clears up a lot of confusion because all of the other voices then just begin to fade away and this one voice is the one that becomes louder and louder. This is God speaking to us. Now they understood, as I said, Jesus to be making that claim. That was his claim. To be the true and the living God to be the God of Israel. Not God the Father, but God the Son. Now, there's a second idea behind the name as well, and this is the one that I really want to concentrate on this morning. And the idea behind this name, I am, or as it would become uh, known later as Yahweh, the idea behind that name is that God would become all that man ever needs or could need. And so the name Yahweh means literally the becoming one. The becoming one, the one who will become for us all that we need. Now, the Bible is what we call a progressive revelation, specifically the Old Testament. This revelation that began back in the pages of the Old Testament, it culminates when we come to the, the entrance of Christ into the world. He's the, he's the, um, the final, um, when it comes to the revelation, he's, he's the climactic uh, point of the revelation. But in, in the Old Testament record, what you have is a progressive revelation of God. In other words, God doesn't show us everything about himself in the very beginning. 
he progressively reveals himself to us over, historically over this long period of time, we have it condensed for us in the pages of scripture here. So all throughout the Old Testament, God is showing himself to be the becoming one by becoming to his people, his covenant people, whether it was uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back in the early days of the covenant or then Moses and the people of Israel later, he's showing himself uh, to, to be the becoming one to meet every need that they could possibly have. And there are different places in the Old Testament where we, we see this, um, we see the Lord is, uh, and then there's something attached to it. Like in Genesis 22, for example, we find there that Abraham names a certain place, Mount Moriah, he, he names it uh, after the Lord being the provider. Remember in Genesis 22, that's when Abraham took his son Isaac up to a mountain to sacrifice him. Now we know the whole story, we know that God never really intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. That's a stumbling block for some people. How could God request Abraham to kill his own son? God never intended for Abraham to kill his son. What God was doing is he was painting a picture of a father who deeply loved his son, who was going to sacrifice his son. It was a picture of what God would do himself. And so Abraham named the place the Lord or Yahweh, and the Hebrew word is Jireh, which means provides. So there God begins to reveal himself as the provider. And in the context there, the provision is for atonement. The the provision is for redemption. There was a lamb that was offered there. So we need, what do we need first and foremost? We need to be redeemed. We need to to have our sins atoned for. We need to be reconciled to God. How is that going to happen? The Lord's going to do it for us. He's going to provide that for us. So this is the beginning of this progressive revelation that I'm talking about. And then as you go further into the Old Testament, you go into the book of Exodus, for example, and there God brings the children of Israel into the covenant with himself, and then he promises them all kinds of things, and one of the things that he says to them is that he is going to be their healer. He's going to be the one who's going to take care of them bodily. He's going to be the one who's going to uh, supply all that they need by way of health and so forth. So again, we have the name there, Yahweh, our healer. And then a little bit further as we go into the record, we find in Judges there's a place where that name appears again, I am or Yahweh, your peace. What do we need? We need peace. And so God is the one who becomes to us what we need. He becomes our peace. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, there we read the Lord our righteousness, or Yahweh, our righteousness, or I am your righteousness. Again, God becoming what we need. What do I need? I need righteousness. I don't have righteousness in myself. If I'm going to stand before God and receive his favor and his blessing, I have to be righteous. But I can't be righteous because I'm, I'm unrighteous by nature. How, how can this happen? The Lord becomes our righteousness. And probably the most well-known example of this is in the 23rd Psalm where we read, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? That means God becomes to us everything that we need as his sheep, as his people. He takes care of us. So this is the meaning of the word that I want you to focus on today. Not to forget the, the aspect of this referring to God alone being um, self-existent and self-sufficient and so forth. That's the foundational thing. But the more practical thing at this point is thinking in terms of the Lord being the becoming one. He becomes to you what you need. And think for just a second quickly about the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. David, you remember, was a uh, shepherd. And so David understood sheep and he understood uh, the needs of sheep. And I know some of you are farmers and I know some of you uh, have sheep. I've seen the, the flocks of sheep out in the fields. And you know, if, if there's one thing about sheep that is, 
absolutely certain sheep need a shepherd. They need someone to take care of them. And it's interesting that God, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but God, he, when he refers to us, he always refers to us as sheep. I mean, think of all of the animals that uh, God could have used to uh, sort of illustrate what we're like. He could have used any animal that he wanted. You know, I like, like a dolphin. You know, dolphins are really smart. They uh, seem to have this amazing um, ability to communicate and so forth. Uh, but the Lord never said uh, we were his dolphins. I, I was watching this program the other night. This was absolutely amazing. It was, um, it's that program, you know, where they, they send in their videos, like their home videos. It used to be videos, now it's DVDs. They send them in and it's all the crazy things that people do and you watch them and you laugh and people are getting hurt and killed and we're all sitting there laughing our heads off about it. Uh, but I was watching this one the other night and there's a bird, there is a bird who goes over to, he's on a dock and he goes over and he grabs a piece of bread that is laying on the dock and he doesn't eat the bread. He goes instead with the bread and he drops little crumbs in the water and when the fish come up to get the bread, he grabs the fish and eats the fish. He's a fishing bird. Amazing. That's pretty intelligent, I think, right? So sheep, you know, we're, again, we're not God's birds. We're God's sheep. And sheep need someone to take care of them. Listen, today, this is what every one of us need to realize. Whatever you need, God will provide that for you. He becomes for you what you need. He becomes that peace that we need. We can't find peace in this world, can we? The world is at war. It's crazy. There's no peace. There's no peace in the hearts of people. How does a person find peace? Some people think, well, you know, if, if I just could get more money, I would, uh, life would be so much easier and I would be, I would be peaceful then. I wouldn't be so stressed out. Well, it's not true because the richest people in the world are probably the most stressed out people in the world. How do we find peace? We can't find peace ourselves, but God becomes our peace. Again, we mentioned righteousness. Now, moving forward, as I said, these are all examples of where we see this becoming one working itself out in the long history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. But then we come to Jesus. And what we have in Jesus is we have the fulfillment or the completion of the revelation. So it's a progressive revelation. God slowly begins to reveal to man what he's like. And then that revelation culminates with Christ. And in this very gospel of John, Jesus says in his prayer to the Father in the 17th chapter, he says this, listen, he says, I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me. I have manifested your name. Going back to where we started, what is his name? I am who I am. What did Jesus say about himself? Before Abraham was, I am. Now what is he saying? I have manifested your name to the men that you have given me, to the people that you have given me. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to make God known. That's what he came to do. And so it's through this name of God that he reveals himself. Jesus comes and he says, I have made your name known to those that you have given me. And then what we find in the Gospel of John that we're going to be studying this week, we find a number of places. There's actually uh, six or seven different places where this very same formula here in John chapter 8, Jesus just simply says, I am, because he's wanting to emphasize his divinity, his deity. But in several other places through the Gospel of John, we have the same thing, but then there's something attached to it. Like in the Old Testament, I am your provider, I am your peace, I am your shepherd, I am your righteousness. When we come to the Gospel of John, we find Jesus saying things like this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life and so on. 
And so those are the things that I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on today. These are the claims of Jesus. He claimed to be the great I am. He claimed to be the self-existent creator, the self-sufficient creator. And he also claimed to be the one who will become to us whatever we need. What do we need? Well, just like our bodies need food in order to be strong and healthy, so our soul needs to be nourished as well. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. What bread is to the body, Jesus is to the soul. This is why it's so important to feed on him. And and in the context of John chapter 6, where he made that statement, he says that very thing. He says, he who who believes in me, uh, or he who feeds on me, will never hunger or will never be thirsty. There's another uh, place, Jesus doesn't use the exact uh, term, but he speaks of, about um, being the, the living waters or how he would give living water. And so it's through Jesus as we come to him that he nourishes us. He gives us the spiritual food that we need. You know, it's funny that we often fail to make that connection. I meet people all the time and they're struggling spiritually. They're, they're having a hard time. Their faith is weak. And so I ask them, well, what do you do to build yourself up in your faith? And I always ask them the one simple question. Do you read your Bible? Do you meditate on the scripture? Oh, well, I I don't really have much time to do that, they say quite often. They say, well, I pray a lot, but, but I don't really have time to be in the Bible. Well, listen, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not meditating on the scriptures, you know what it's like? It's just like not eating. So let's say you go for an entire week without eating. You're not fasting for any spiritual reason. You just haven't eaten all week. What's going to happen at the end of the week? You're going to be weak. You're going to be feeble. You're going to want to just, you know, lie down in bed and not get up and do anything because you're not going to have any strength. And so the same is true. There's a parallel in the spiritual realm. If I'm not nourishing myself on the bread of life, Jesus, through that word that he's given to me, I am going to be weak as a Christian. I'm going to be feeble. But he promises that as we feed on him, we'll we'll be strong, we'll be strengthened. And then he says also that we'll never hunger. The world is full of hungry people, not just for physical food. Again, there's that emptiness in the soul. There's that void in the soul and people are trying everything imaginable to fill that void. It can't happen. Jesus is the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But then he also said in the eighth chapter, the 12th verse, he said, I am, taking again that name of God, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And then he added this, and he who follows me shall not remain in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, implied in the statement, I'm the light of the world, is we are in darkness. And this is absolutely true. The world is in darkness. And the world has always been in darkness. And here we are going through another cycle where it seems that things are getting darker once again. There was a time a hundred plus years ago where people thought, oh, the world is so bright and cheery and wonderful and uh, things are getting better and better, they used to say. And then the First World War came and we're, we're celebrating the, celebrating, I don't know if you can celebrate, but uh, we're remembering the, uh, the First World War here this week, aren't we? Leading up to that war, though, people thought everything was getting better. I I have a lot of commentaries that I read by preachers from previous generations, and a lot of the preachers in this country even, back in in the, at the turn of the century, going into the 20th century, they were talking about how wonderful the world was, and they saw that in in their mind, uh, the, the world would soon be Christianized, and everything would be perfect, and we would eradicate poverty, and we would eradicate, uh, ignorance and war and all of those things and then 1914 came and then 
sometime later, 1938, 39 came, and so forth. And, and now here we are again. And if we just open up the paper today, what do we see? We see war everywhere. We see innocent people being slaughtered. We see Christians being put to death simply because they're Christians. The, my point is that the world's in darkness. But we don't have to go look in uh, the Middle East, or you don't even have to open the newspaper, right? We're in darkness. Our own lives are in darkness. Until we come to Christ, we're in darkness. We're, we're groping in the darkness. We don't know where, where we're going or, or really what we're doing. You look at some of the decisions that people make today. For example, politicians, people in our government, you think, how do they make these decisions? What kind of, uh, they, they just seem so in the dark concerning reality. That's the condition of man. But Jesus came and he said, I am the light of the world. And you know what happens when you come to Christ, when you put your trust in him, when you feed on him, you have light. And so as you're walking through the world, you're not stumbling because you have the light of life. He gives us that light. But he is the light. And wherever the gospel, the true gospel is gone, and I'm not talking about wherever the church is gone because sometimes the church is a poor representative of who Jesus really is. But wherever the true gospel is gone and wherever people have really followed Christ, this is where you see light come into society. We have the Compassion Group here with us this week. And, of course, that's a Christian-based organization. And what is it all about? It's about going into to places that are dark and bringing hope and bringing light to people. That's what Christians have done. You know, when you think about it, the, the atheist, atheism is big today. And the atheists are laying claim to everything. They're, they've done all of the wonderful things. They're the scientists. They've discovered everything. It's nonsense. All the original uh, founders of science were all believers. Most of them were Christians. Some of them were just uh, more theist or maybe even deist, but they believed in a creator. But you think of all of the things that the church has done, that believers have done over the years, all the hospitals, all the schools, all of those types of things, those originated because of Christians, because God brought them out of darkness, and then they saw other people still in the darkness, and they said, no, we've got to go help. We've got to go do something. Wherever the gospel is gone, light has come. Jesus is the light of the world. But then he said also in the 11th chapter, he said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, that is, that is so profound. It is obviously so significant. Sometimes people look at that and they say, oh, well, you know, what does that mean? That doesn't really mean much. Well, it doesn't mean much if you're in perfect health and you've deluded yourself to thinking that you're never going to die. But the moment you realize, wait, one of these days I'm not going to be here then suddenly the idea of somebody being the resurrection becomes, that becomes interesting to say the least. Jesus claimed to be the resurrection. The Bible says that the great enemy of man is death. And death is connected back to sin. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died for sinners, destroyed sin, and in the process rose from the dead and destroyed death as well. I am the resurrection. What do we need? We need deliverance from death. That's probably our greatest need in the bigger picture, right? Deliverance from death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm so glad there's a resurrection. We're here this week, and as most of you know, our dear brother and friend and fellow servant in the gospel, Phil, is, is gone to be with the Lord we have that absolute confidence in the resurrection. We have that absolute confidence that he's with the Lord, that one day we will all be raised together to live eternally together in God's kingdom through what Christ accomplished. I am the resurrection. So you see, Jesus becomes for us, just as we saw in the Old Testament, Jesus now, he's the ultimate fulfillment of that. He becomes for us everything that we need. We need a resurrection as a matter of fact, it's not just the resurrection later, although it's that, of course, the bodily resurrection, but spiritually, we need to be brought back to life. And that's what the gospel does. It brings us back to life. But then Jesus said, and I'm going to do two more here. Jesus said in John 14, 6, a passage that most people are familiar with, most Christians anyway, one of those radical claims of Christ, like the, the one I just read, 
Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about that for a moment. And then Jesus added, and no one comes to the Father except through me, or to make it crystal clear, no one comes to God except through Jesus. Now that's a, that's a radical claim, isn't it? That's a very exclusive claim. How could Jesus make such a claim? How could a man make a claim like that? Well, remember, this man was God. That's how he could make that claim. Some people say, well, how could a man become God? A man didn't become God. God became a man. And that's, that's doable. God can do anything he wants. If he wanted to become a man, he certainly could. And he did. But Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Notice he didn't say, I am one of many ways. A lot of people wish he would have said that. A lot of people uh, want to insist that he, that's really what he meant, that he's one of many ways. No, Jesus said, I am the way. There are not many ways into a relationship with God. There's one way, and Christ is that one way. Because again, he's the God-man. He's the fulfillment of the promise. If you trace history all the way back to the beginning, at the beginning, God and men are connected. And then something happens, sin enters, and there's a break. There's a separation between God and man. But God says, I'm going to mend this. I'm going to restore this. I'm going to reconcile this thing, and I'm going to do it by sending a Savior. Jesus is the one who does that. And so he's the way, meaning that he is the way back to God. He's the way back to God. Secondly, he said, I am the truth. We live in a world where people say there's no such thing as truth. Everything is relative. This to me is the stupidest idea of all time. I don't know how anybody seriously thinks this. And I think they don't seriously think it. They just, it sounds good and it gets you off the hook. At least it seems like it does. So you're going to pretend like nothing really matters, like everything is relative. But nobody can live their life according to relativism. Because relativism means everybody does what they want. Everybody's opinion is just as equally valid as everybody else's. There is nothing that's absolutely right. There's nothing that's absolutely wrong. Nobody lives like that. It sounds good philosophically. Nobody lives that way. You see, because the person who is insisting on relativism is also insisting on their rights. But if you are a relativist, you don't have any rights. Where do you get your rights? You think you should have rights? So what? Who cares what you think? I don't think that. See, that's relativism. Jesus said, I am the truth. There is truth. Not only is there truth, Jesus said he is the truth. He is the truth about God. You want to know who God is, what he's like? Well, you got a picture of him. You have a portrait of him in the pages of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a portrait of God. He's the truth about God, but he's also the truth about us. He's the truth about man. And what truth do we learn from Jesus about man? We learn the truth of what man was intended to be when God created us. And what did that look like with Jesus? It looked like being in a relationship with God where there's a complete dependence on him and a total desire to live for his glory. That's what Jesus did. So he shows us what man was intended for. And listen, today, if you're living for anything else, other than the glory of God through faith in Jesus, you're wasting your life. And deep down inside, you you know that there's something that isn't right because there's that nagging thing, there's that emptiness, there's there's that void there that can never be filled. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and then he said, I am the life. You know, some people dismiss the Bible as being simplistic and uh, irrelevant to the, the brilliance of people today and so forth. But, you know, if you really get down to what the Bible is teaching, it is, it is far from simplistic and it is far from uh, elementary. It is so profound. Jesus says, I am the life. And this, I want to take you back now to the whole thing of I am who I am. We all know about being. We have being, right? I am somebody. You are somebody. These are things philosophers, you know, have dealt with, you know, do I really exist? Am I here? And they've contemplated this. The Greeks contemplated it. It was contemplated a few centuries ago. And just the the whole idea of being, this this self-existent thing, 
this reality that we are all dependent on something else. But yet God is not. And when Jesus says, I am the life, and there are many places in John's gospel where he emphasizes that Jesus is the life. Again, he's talking about that, that he is the life. He is the source of life. There is no life apart from him. He is the life. The, the, the reason there is life, you know, there's this, the science of biogenesis, the origin of life. How did life come about? Well, the naturalists say life came about through non-life. Um, you know, really, you trace it back far enough, nothing, nothing created everything. Nothing created everything. How did nothing do anything? Nothing is nothing. But then some say, oh, well, no, matter, you know, it was matter, and then matter evolved and so forth. But, you know, matter is non-living. How did non-living things produce life? That's not possible. But there's an interesting statement in the New Testament and here in the Gospel of John where Jesus says this, and I think this is where we see how profound the scriptures really are. Jesus says that the Father has life in himself. Okay, that's the being. I am who I am, self-existent. The Father has life in himself, and he is granted that the Son also have life in himself. So when Jesus says, I am the life, he is claiming to be the source of life. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us. Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and there, speaking of Jesus that he was in the world and the world was made by him and not anything that was made was made apart from him. Do you know that? Do you realize that? When you look in the mirror, do you realize you were made by him? When you go out in these fields and look at the grass, when you look at the cattle, when you look up at the sky, do you realize everything was made by him? You see, when we begin to get a grip on just who we're talking about here Jesus is the life. This revolutionizes everything. I wasn't always a Christian. I, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my early 20s. And I'll tell you one thing I was wondering. I wasn't wondering so much at that point was there life after death. I was wondering is there life during life? I was frustrated inside. I was, um, there, there, was, there was that inner turmoil there was always that sense of futility and frustration and emptiness. Even though I might not have shown it so much outwardly, it was there. But, you know, it was the fact that there was no life. And then I came to meet Christ, who is the life. He gives us life. He gives us spiritual life. He gives us eternal life. And now the final one that I want to look at here real quickly and these are going to be touched on by some of the different guys throughout the week, not all of them necessarily. And I'm going to come back to this one on Friday. But the final one here, Jesus said in John 15, 1, he said, I am, again, taking the name of God, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then he talks about us as being branches. And this is where he tells us how essential it is, we all know this, a branch severed from the vine cannot live, right? A branch severed from the vine cannot produce fruit or anything like that. And this is where Jesus calls us in the 15th chapter of John here, uh, connected to the statement, he says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it uh, by itself, unless it abide in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. But he that abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And this is the final point that I want to make here. God wants you to bear a fruitful life. Do you realize that God made you for a reason, a purpose? God has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. And the in a, in a general sense, the plan is that you would bear fruit. Just like a, a beautiful uh, branch, just a cluster, beautiful clusters of grapes, that, that's the picture. God is wanting our lives to be fruitful. How can I have a fruitful life? How can I have a life that's going to be meaningful? How can I have a life that's going to be a blessing to the people around me and something that glorifies God? How can I be a life that at the end of my life, God says, well done, 
that was what I was looking for. That's what I intended. There's only one way to do that, and that's by being connected to the vine. I am the true vine, Jesus said, and he that abides in me bears much fruit. So you see, these are the these are the things that Jesus took to himself as he expressed his own divinity, as he identified with the great I am who I am. And as we look this week at these different aspects of this in more detail, I pray that you will come to a greater understanding of who Christ is and a greater love for him and a greater commitment to living for his glory and a a greater determination to to bear fruit. And again, I want to just make a reference to Phil. Phil bore much fruit. And I think that the fruit that he did bear that we were able to see uh, is just a small bit of what is yet to come. But my point is this. With Phil, he understood this principle. He understood the principle of being a branch and abiding in the vine, the true vine from which all good things come, from which all power comes, from which all life comes. And, and Phil had that connection. And that's what kept him going continually. You know, honestly, in so many ways, I think Phil gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the gospel because for the last 14 years, he burned the candle at both ends, so to speak, just to get the gospel to as many people as he could. He was up and down. (laughs) He was all over this county. He was all over Devon. He was up and down the country itself, traveling. We used to joke together. Phil was sort of a modern-day Wesley, and he had all of these cars that he would wear out. And we would jokingly talk about the cars like they were his horses. You know, John Wesley, back in the 1700s, he would kill these horses because he'd just ride them forever, you know, going from place to place, village to village to preach the gospel. And we would joke about Phil's cars like they were horses because he killed about seven or eight cars. Think, Phil, did you ever learn to drive? He's always ringing me up, telling me, oh, yeah, the car, you know, broke the axle or I ran into a a wall or, you know, something happened. But here was a man who gave himself entirely with the objective of bearing fruit, being a branch connected to the vine, and glorifying God through much fruit. And as I look out at you this morning, it's part of the fruit. But as I was considering Phil's life just right after he passed away, I thought the, the verse that came to my mind was this, and it's here in John's gospel as well. Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to literally die, as is the case with Phil, but that that did happen there. But even while he lived, Phil had died. He died to himself. Phil came from South Florida. You ever been to South Florida? The weather's a little better there than it is here. It's a little warmer. (laughs) Phil was a surfer. That's how Phil and I became friends. We both surfed and we met in, of all places, in that beautiful surf town of Moscow, Russia in January. I think it was 1994. But we connected immediately because I was a West Coast surfer in the U.S. and he was an East Coast surfer and we had a bunch of friends in between that. But you know, he died. He died to himself. He came here, and he loved it here. And it wasn't like he was moping around saying, oh, I wish I could live in Florida again. But he made, he made a sacrifice. And in many ways, he, he made lots of sacrifices. I remember a few years ago, him and I traveled to, um, we traveled to Cape Town together. And because I'm part of the bigger church in California, you know, I usually foot the bill for everything. So, not me, but the church. And um, so, I, I had purchased the tickets, and I tried to get an upgrade, and we didn't get the upgrade, but on the way home, 
from Cape Town, you know, it's like a 12 hour flight. They took Phil and they bumped him up to business class. And I thought, wait a second, I paid for that. Why am I sitting in the back of the plane? And Phil's up in business class. And you know, honestly, the Lord spoke to me and said, he deserves to be up there. You don't. You got it too easy back at home. He's been sacrificing. And, you know, just a small thing. But my point is that if we're going to bear fruit, which that's God's desire, we've got to die to self is what we've got to die to and live for Christ. And that's how we have a fruitful life I am the true vine, Jesus said. And that's where fruit's going to come from, from our connection with him. So in closing, let me just say this. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, or it could also be translated in his son. And this is my final point. Jesus himself, he's the message. Jesus is the message. We worship Jesus. We follow Jesus. We serve Jesus because Jesus is the manifestation of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation. All things were made by him and for him. And he's the message. And since that's true of him, he's everything that we need. He's the becoming one. Listen, today, you don't need anything apart from Jesus. Now you're saying, well, wait a second. What about, I need a job. I need an income. I need, yeah, okay, I understand all that. Yeah, of course we need those things. But even more than that, we need Jesus. And when we have Jesus He takes care of these things as well. He provides for us. He does things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Two, two and a half, three weeks ago, my, I had, uh, my son and daughter-in-law had a baby. Some of you know that. They, they had a little girl. We have our first granddaughter. We have four grandsons and now we have a granddaughter. And we were so excited about the birth of our granddaughter and she was born, and we got the call that she's here, and everything's wonderful, and praise the Lord, and that's great. And just about 10 hours later, we got another call, and they said, you know, things aren't, things, things aren't as good as they appeared initially. Her name is Evelyn, or Evelyn, and they said that uh, they discovered a problem with her heart. She has a heart defect. And she, had, she was born with what's called uh, transposed uh, great arteries, and this calls for a, a major open heart surgery where they go in and they, they reverse the arteries. They put them back in their proper place. Now, so what happened is very interesting. And my point here is how, you know, Jesus works for us. And, and you know, he takes care of details and things in our lives. So they, they were a week away from the delivery of the baby or the, or the due date And suddenly, the insurance that they had previously dropped them, and another insurance company picked them up, and they had to go to a completely different hospital, a completely foreign environment. They didn't like it. They were unhappy about it, but they couldn't do anything about it. But interestingly, as a result of that switchover, when they discovered that the baby had the heart problem, because they had had switched insurance, not... They didn't choose to do it. It just happened to them. But because this had happened, this made them eligible to go to the best possible hospital on the West Coast for treatment. And it also then opened the door for the best surgeon in the world to do the surgery on little Evelyn. And so at six days old, she had a seven-hour open-heart surgery. And God took this man... This surgeon, who's world-renowned, and he went in, and he reversed those arteries. He put everything back together, and healing up, you know, after some days, they sent her home, and they said to my son and my daughter-in-law, they said, give her four weeks to just heal up and then treat her like any other kid because she's perfectly fine. And we praise the Lord for that. And we see how God works through these kinds of things. But you know, at the same time, literally while that was happening, 
Phil was fading in a hospital in Florida. And I was talking with Megan, and I was praying for Phil, and I'm there with my son and daughter, and comforting them, and looking at the baby, and, you know, all the prayers, praying for Phil, praying for Evelyn. God chooses to take Phil home, and he chooses to provide miraculously to heal up Evelyn. We don't know why God does what he does, but we can be confident that what he does is right and good. And we couldn't be in any better hands or in any better place than right there in the arms of Jesus. Jesus, he's the message. He's everything. He's the great I am and everything is ultimately gonna culminate in him. He came, he revealed the Father's name to the men that he gave him, but still most of the world doesn't know who the Father is. Guess what? Jesus is gonna come back. And he's going to make it clear when he gets here because he's going to set up a kingdom that's never going to end. And praise God, that day's coming and we can't wait for it. But this week, we've got a little taste of heaven here on earth. And so I pray that God would bless as we take a fresh look at Jesus, the God-man. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are, Lord, that you're our creator, that you're our redeemer, that you're the one who provided for our needs, that you're the one that becomes to us whatever it is that we need as your people. And Lord, just as you took care of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just as you led Moses and the children of Israel, Lord, we're your people today in the 21st century here in 2014. And Lord, may we have the absolute confidence that just as they trusted in you, just as they believed in you, just as they depended on you and you were faithful, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that that is true. We praise you for that. And so Lord, I pray for everyone here today. I just pray a a fresh touch of your spirit, a fresh blessing upon their lives, and I pray that they would be greatly enriched in their fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone with us today that has never met you, Lord, that they would realize today their eyes would be open, that they only can breathe because you've given them breath, that they only exist because you, the, the one who is self-existent, have given them being. And Lord, that they would humble themselves before you and surrender their lives to you. So be honored and glorified here today, this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.